Before we begin, I need to just make the announcement once again about the congregational meeting, January 27th, so that's uh, in a week and a half, 7 p.m. at the church. Uh, two main orders of business, uh, the, the budget, we have to vote on the budget, uh, and those budgets are available in the back. There's one slight error, and we didn't print those off, um, but the corrected copies will be available. Uh, that's one of the announcements as well, actually, correction. Uh, corrected copies will be available in, uh, in that meeting. It's, it's not substantial, though. I won't even tell you what it is. Um, and uh, uh, more importantly, I would say, is the re-election of one of our officers, David Stevens, standing for re-election, Elder David Stevens, for a three-year term. Uh, with those said, let us uh, begin our worship. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Please rise for the call to worship. Psalm 147, verses 1 and 2. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and praise is beautiful. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers together the outcasts of Israel. Let us uh, remain standing together and sing hymn number 81.
Please be seated. And let us pray together. Dear Lord, it's good to sing Luther's hymn. Uh, We love to think of your strength, uh, to imagine you as uh, you are described in Psalm 46 as a mighty fortress, a place of refuge, a strong tower in which we might find safety from uh, the storms which are about us, the trials, the temptations, in which even, uh, strange though it is to say, we might find refuge from yourself and from your own wrath. You become to us a refuge from the wrath which is to come, the wrath which you bring, as we will see plainly uh, demonstrated in the slaying of the firstborn in the evening service in Egypt. Uh, You are both he who spares and he who destroys. And the only way we can be spared is if you should spare us from yourself. And so we conceive of your grace and your mercy and your love. Lord, there is no greater enemy. There is no greater foe than you. Should we oppose you and should we find that you are opposed to us, uh, but to be reconciled to you through the priesthood and the mercy and the merits of Jesus Christ is defined as you express, Lord Jesus, to your disciples that we are your servants, but also your friends, that you have befriended us, that you have identified with us and thrown your lot in with ours, that you have united us to yourself as closely and as fully as you possibly can. And that this this unity and this love which you express and which endures as an expression uh, of that which is eternally residing in uh, the divine the divine council. It is an expression of election of your predetermined plan being worked out now in history and one that can never be set aside or overturned. Father, there is no doctrine which is so reassuring to your church as the doctrine of election, because it is the very basis of our salvation that the, the, the determination which you had to save us was worked out in the death of Jesus Christ. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't there that he uh, accomplished something that was against the divine will. It was in the fullness of the divine will and the eternal will. Lo, I've come to do your will, we read in Hebrews chapter 10 in fulfillment uh, of one of the Psalms. Uh, and, so, and so it is, dear Lord. Uh, we find... The greatest possible reconciliation, the greatest fullness of salvation, uh, one which is in keeping, not against, but in keeping with your perfection and your glory. And because of this, we understand why salvation is presented to us in the New Testament in the most lofty and incredible terms. Why the believer is meant to enjoy not uh, a pittance, but he is made full and he is able to enjoy the greatest of graces, holiness, uh, and, and, and above all, an assurance as to his own salvation. We are able, uh, even now by faith, we are told and we know by experience to draw into heaven itself and to, deal, and to do business with a God in the Holy of Holies. Not because of our own righteousness, but wholly conscious of our sin, once for all nailed to the cross and forever put away there. We go on the merits and through the mediatorship and the surety of Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we adore you, we praise you, we acknowledge that the place which we have in this world and in heaven is solely because of you, and as we long to be in heaven in actual experience one day, we know it is only because you have led us there safely as our captain and as our high priest. And as we stand there forever praising you, we will forever realize that the place we have there is because of you. Father, we have to realize that... uh, it isn't all pleasant uh, for the church. There are trials, there are hardships, 
The world in many ways seems to be against us and only increasingly so. Uh, the causes which we champion all seem to be failing. Uh, and we even find in your word uh, difficult truths. None so difficult as that of apostasy. Uh, Father, there, there, there are difficulties that we must face. And, and even sitting under a sermon on apostasy, it isn't the most cheerful thing. Uh, and, and it isn't meant to be. So, Lord, we ask you that you would give us fortitude and strength to face all of the hard things you have for us and all the bitter pills of your providence, even a solemn consideration, the doctrine of apostasy. And we pray that by all of these things, you might create in us a greater spirit of faithfulness and Christian love and greater devotion above all to Jesus Christ, our great high priest. But then as we close, we remember those words which he taught us to pray now saying together, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. So scripture reading, I want to look at a parallel text in the book of Hebrews. There are two passages in Hebrews which are terrible. I, I don't know how else to put it, uh, but they're just terrible. And uh, one of them is our sermon text, and the other one is Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And they both present us with the same truth. We would think that once was enough, uh, but no, twice it turns out is what we need. Uh, and so... Let us see what we saw before. Hebrews chapter 6. And consider the terribleness of apostasy. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptism, of laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, of eternal judgment, and this we will do if God per- permits. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it, And bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. Let us stand in response to God's word by singing together the doxology. read responsibly now Psalm 91, Psalter Selection 44, found on page 640 of your hymnal. 
Read along with me in the bold. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in him will I trust. Surely he shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. He shall cover thee with his feathers and under his wings shalt thou trust. His truths shall be thy shield and buckler. Thou shalt not be afraid for the terror by night, nor for the arrow that flieth by day, nor for the pestilence that walketh in darkness, nor for the destruction that wasteth at noonday. A thousand shall fall at thy side and ten thousand at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee. Only with thine eyes shalt thou behold and see the reward of the wicked. Because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the Most High, thy habitation. There shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Thou shalt tread upon the lion and adder, the young lion and the dragon shalt thou trample under feet. Because he hath set his love upon me, therefore will I deliver him. I will set him on high, because he hath known my name. He shall call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. And let us now in preparation for the word of God, both read and preached, stand together and sing hymn number 405.
Thee. Amen. Please be seated. And on to that second dreadful but needful passage, Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, And I'm sorry to say, uh, actually Hebrews 12, it comes up again. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 27, uh, 26 through 31. Hear the word of the Lord. For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Let us pray together. Father, it's a difficult truth which we are here to consider this morning. A message to your church, a warning concerning apostasy, which uh, we find again and again in the book of Hebrews. Uh, We only pray that we would have faith to hear and to receive what you have for your church this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not terribly fond, I must confess, of preaching on the subject of apostasy. I find it necessary only because it's in Scripture. You know, I preached these sermons once in the early service and again here, so I've already preached it once. My daughter's comment was, that was a deadly sermon. I don't, I, I don't know if that was the effect I was going for, but at the same time, I, I have to say that it doesn't do any good for us uh, to find in Scripture the warnings, the fearful warnings, and to seek to soften the blow. Uh, and so I would never seek to do that, but there isn't a single soul here uh, whom I desire to crush. In fact, um, seeing uh, the, the awfulness of the woe of apostasy, I hope to end on uh, a much more hopeful note. So let that be your expectation. Uh, it, it is deadly only for he who is apostate. But as I say, I'm not fond of this subject. I don't know any preacher who really would be. Yet it's something which we find comes up again and again in the book of Hebrews. For reasons I am still comprehending myself. Why would it be a theme in this of all epistles? In calling us, as we find, to greater fidelity to Jesus Christ. Let us draw near, let us hold fast, that sort of thing. He is also at the same time throughout. Warning us over and over against the dangers of apostasy. We find it as early as chapter 2. Again in chapter 3. Chapter 4, chapter 6, chapter 10, chapter 12 just comes up over and over again. And yet it would seem that the more we behold Christ in the glory of his priesthood, the more we are, we are made aware of the danger. It is in many ways a strange paradox, for the reality is equally and more obviously that he who beholds Christ rightly, which is to say by faith, is only made more aware and more conscious of his own salvation He is driven, I mean, not to despair, but to the heights of Christian experience, even to a full assurance of faith as he beholds in Christ a salvation that is full and free. Even as we just sung together in hymn 405. The believer in this state does not feel apostate, 
Far from it. He feels safe and secure in the priesthood of Jesus Christ. And uh, that is the effect of the book of Hebrews, rightly understood. The more we consider, the more we behold Christ in his priesthood. As he stands in the presence of God for us, interceding daily. He ever lives to intercede for us. The more safe, the more secure, the more assured we will be as to our salvation. And the more swiftly we will run on the path to heaven. So the question here becomes, why would apostasy come up in the midst of such a discussion? Well, as I say, it's something of a strange paradox, at least to the feeble human mind, which struggles so much to reconcile things which seem to be at odds. If I were to write on the subject of the priesthood of Christ, it would not occur to me to bring up the subject of apostasy, and certainly not with such frequency, and yet here we find the thoughts of God controlling ours. And the reality which we find is that the closer we draw to Jesus and the more fully we behold him in his high heavenly priesthood, the more grievous it appears that any should profess him and possess him and yet fall off. And in light of that, the truth of the, of the method found in the book of Hebrews in its ex- exhortation suddenly makes sense. So that is the point we must try to comprehend. The closer we draw the more awful it should appear that we should ever fall off. That just as we consider the richness of his grace and the certainty of his salvation and the perfection and the finality of his once for all sacrifice, we are at the same time made aware how terrible and awful it must be to think for a time that we really did possess him only to turn our back and go another way. What could be more awful than that? So it is the glory of Christ's priesthood, I mean, that makes apostasy seem so terrible, as we will see, and which in reality forces us to consider the subject more than anything else. The more precious Christ is to us, the more terrible apostasy becomes before our eyes. So look at how it is presented here. We are now, as I've argued in the practical portion of the epistle, uh, chapters uh, 1, 1 through 10, 18, uh, though it had many exhortations, exhortations which we find again here, uh, nevertheless, that made up the doctrinal portion. Well, we've considered the doctrine. Now we begin uh, in chapter 10, verse 19, to see how it plays out in the Christian experience. The doctrine is now applied. And having exhorted us in the prior text with these three exhortations, let us draw near, let us hold fast, and let us consider one another in Christian fellowship, we should see how naturally what is said in verses 26 and following, that is our passage, follows on from those three exhortations, which is made clear by a single word, namely, for. Having told us, let us, let us, let us, those three exhortations of the prior text, uh, the new verses begin with the word for. For, he says, if we sin willfully, After we have received the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and and on. He goes along the same lines. What is said in these verses, therefore, must be seen as a consequence or a direct result of what was just said in verses 19 through 25. Those verses, rightly considered, will lead us to see of necessity what is being said in our present text. And you really can't consider them apart. You have to consider them together. We are to draw near. We are to hold fast. And we are to meet together for if we sin willfully after having received the knowledge of the truth and so on. 
That is to say, if we do not do these things, then the terrible prospect of apostasy is ever before us. Or as Charles Hodge says, for, again the first word here in verse 26, introduces the reason for the preceding exhortation. The reason we are to draw near, the reason we are to hold fast, the reason we are not to forsake the, the assembling, as is the habit of some. It is precisely for the reason of apostasy that the exhortations are given there. And so we should not look at the, the subject of apostasy, as some do, as a kind of theory or a hypothesis. An idea for us to consider, but not a reality. Rather, we should view it like this. As a very real danger, always confronting the visible church. Always, in every age. And certainly I would say our age is not exempt. Our age, as much as, as any, is marked by apostasy. And supposing we hear the gracious invitations to come and be saved again. Think of the hymn we just sung. Come unto me, you weary, and I will give you rest. And on and on it goes. It's one of my favorite hymns to sing. Reminding us of the gracious love uh, by which Christ invites us to come unto him freely and be saved. Suppose we hear that invitation. To find refuge in the blood of Jesus Christ as he is presented throughout this epistle. And we hear equally the many warnings that attend these invitations. And having heard them like Israel in the wilderness, as we were reminded in chapter 3 of this epistle, we harden our hearts in unbelief. What do we suppose will happen to us? Do we think grace will reach us still? Do we imagine that Christ died even for the apostate? For the one who follows him for a time but turns away in unbelief? This is something which isn't easy to say, but which scripture forces me to say. The reality is that Christ did not die for him. He did not die for such as these. He is no savior to them. His salvation is not for all. Only for those who obey him. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 9. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. That is, to those who are his, his disciples. All his work, considered as a priest, is not offered for mankind in general, but only for those whom the Father gives him. As we see, for instance, in the high priestly prayer, or John chapter 10. To them he is a perfect Savior, and they find nothing lacking in his work. To them he gives eternal life, but to no others. But to the unbelieving, the apostate, they will be numbered among his enemies who make up his footstool at his return. Quoting Psalm 110, we read in verse 13 of chapter 10, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. Again, the simple message is that Christ is no savior to the apostate. But still, it isn't easy to see what value there is in considering the subject. Seeing that, as we all rightly know, the real believer is in no danger of committing the sin. The real believer is safe and sound in the hands of Jesus. The true believer, rightly understood, is one who cannot fall away precisely, not because of himself, but because of his priesthood and the eternal covenant of redemption that stands behind uh, his salvation and his priesthood. And yes, let us see that it is so, and glory in this fact even of ourselves, that the true believer can never fall away nor apostatize. Because of the faithful priesthood of Jesus Christ. And the will of the Father which he came to perform. John chapter 10 verses 27 
through 30. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. The true believer, he says, can never apostatize. No one can ever make him do so. And so what reassuring words he offers to the church. We find here in John chapter 10 and elsewhere what comfort and consolation he gives to poor downcast doubting believers as to their salvation, which he gives fully and freely to them. But to them, he also says. As we find in the Gospels and certainly as we find in the book of Hebrews, again, speaking to his disciples, beware, beware of the dangers that await you. Beware of falling off. And away as some have already done. As we'll see again. uh, The Lord's Supper at the last table. Or the last supper. There was one who was apostate. Jesus reminds them. And the value of this message. For the other eleven and for us. That is for those who are regenerate. Those who are truly saved. And even those who enjoy a full assurance of hope to the end. Is that by these warnings. God is only making their salvation more certain. Not less. You see, we tend to think of the subject as something which devastates and destroys the believer and and leaves him uh, downcast and doubting as to his salvation. That isn't actually how it is meant, uh, how it is meant to affect us. The warnings rightly considered and rightly understood are actually something by which God makes salvation more certain to us, not less. It enables us more easily and more readily to be assured of our salvation, not less. He is offering us by these warnings a greater motivation to diligence as to making their calling and election sure. He is stirring their souls to a greater sense of the need to draw near and to hold fast and to assemble so that their assurance and grasp of salvation will only grow stronger, not weaker. So it is the warnings themselves that keep us safe. Not by themselves, but as part of a larger exhortation, which also includes many consolations. But together with these, let us see that the warnings also have a place. They chide us for our slackness and they encourage us to greater diligence. And if you were to ask me how I know that the believer can never commit this terrible, unpardonable sin, my answer would be this. That when he hears the warning, he heeds the warning. He makes it his business to hear all the words which God has to say, especially now that in these last days he has spoken in his son. That is what marks out the believer in radical contrast to the unbeliever and the apostate. One truly hears, the other doesn't. You remember what Jesus says throughout the Gospels. He who is ears to hear, let him hear. There is the mark of distinction. One hears, the other does not. And so I'm saying that the warnings are for him and for no one else. He who has ears to hear. Surely they were not uttered for the benefit of the unbelieving and the apostate himself. His case is hopeless and he cannot be helped by such admonitions and warnings. But the believer can be helped and he will. As he inwardly senses the danger and the terribleness and even the unthinkableness of such a sin, namely forsaking Christ. He is thus made more readily And easily prepared to hold fast to Christ as Savior. Salvation to him is made more certain, not less. He is motivated more than ever to heed the exhortations of this great epistle. 
to draw near, to hold fast, and so forth. But as apostasy here is our subject, and the sin which we are being warned of and against, let us be clear as to its exact nature. Something which we find defined, I think, quite clearly in chapter 12, uh, excuse me, chapter 6 and chapter 10, the two passages which we've read this morning. And based upon those two chapters, I would offer this definition of apostasy. Apostasy is a willful rejection of the truth we once loved and embraced. It is a rejection in particular of the once for all sacrifice for sin Christ offered on the cross as our salvation. He who embraces the gospel and yet who turns his back upon it. Such a sinner, Philip Edgecombe Hughes says, turns away of set purpose from what he knows to be the truth. And so we must fully appreciate the force of the word as we find at the beginning here, willful or willfully, if we sin willfully. It is not a straying from Christ on account of weakness. He is not describing the weak, the doubting believer. For such disciples, Christ is able to regain them to himself, and he does. It's something else. It's the deliberate forsaking. It is the embrace of sin in place of Christ. The willful sinning. The willful turning. That marks out this sin. It's spoken of variously throughout these verses. First as a trampling upon the Son of God underfoot. Pointing to a contempt and a disdain for his person. The very son of God. Regarding it. Regarding him, excuse me. As that which has no value and is worthless. It is described secondly as accounting the blood of the covenant a common thing. Again, pointing to a devaluing of what we once prized. And thirdly. As insulting the spirit of grace, the author of this grace in our souls is the one who convicts and convinces us of our need of Christ. To him we say, I value not your work, I go another way. There is no way, beloved, to minimize the seriousness of this sin. And what makes it especially desperate, as is stressed both here in chapter 6, along with what is said in chapter 12 about Esau, is the impossibility of his return. The one who is apostate is he who falls away and who does not come back. He may seek a way back to grace, but he cannot find it. That is the emphasis of what is said in chapter 6. Let me read it again, verses 4 through 6. It is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. The impossibility of his return. That is what makes apostasy what it is. The same is said of Esau. He says... Don't let the root of bitterness spring up. And by this many become defiled. Verse 16 of chapter 12. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau. Who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward when he wanted to inherit the blessing he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance though he sought it diligently with tears. He sought to return. He sought to find it but he could not. And here Bunyan's man in the iron cage 
also comes to mind. He puts it so well. I read this in the chapter 6 sermon, but I feel I must read it again in full. And here he quotes not only Hebrews chapter 6, but also Hebrews 10. Listen for the language. He describes Christian on his journey to the celestial city. And he is, he is stopped by the interpreter to consider the man in the iron cage. So we along with him. Now, said Christian, let me go hence. Nay, stay, said the interpreter, till I have showed thee a little more. And after that, thou shalt go on thy way. So he took him by the hand again and led him into a very dark room where there sat a man in an iron cage. Now the man to look on seemed very sad. He sat with his eyes looking down to the ground, his hands folded together, and he sighed as if he would break his heart. Then said Christian, what means this? At which the interpreter bid him talk with the man. Then said Christian to the man, what art thou? The man answered, I am what I was not once. What was thou once? The man said, I was once a fair and flourishing professor, both in mine own eyes and also in the eyes of others. I once was, as I thought, fair for the celestial city, and had then even joy at the thoughts that I should get thither. Well, well, but what art thou now? I am now a man of despair, and am shut up in it, as in this iron cage. I cannot get out. Oh, now I cannot. But how camest thou in this condition? I left off to watch and be sober. I laid the reins upon the neck of my lust. I sinned against the light of the word. And the goodness of God, I have grieved the spirit and he is gone. I tempted the devil and he has come to me. I have provoked God to anger and he has left me. I have so hardened my heart that I cannot repent. Then said Christian to the interpreter, but is there no hopes for such a man as this? Ask him, said the interpreter. Then said Christian, is there no hope, but you must be kept in the iron cage of despair? No, none at all. Why? The son of the blessed is very pitiful. Here, listen for the language of Hebrews 10. I have crucified him to myself afresh. I have despised his person. I have despised his righteousness. I have counted his blood an unholy thing. I have done despot to the spirit of grace. Therefore, I have shut myself out of all the the promises. And there now remains to me nothing but threatenings, dreadful threatenings, fearful threatenings of certain judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour me as an adversary. For what did you bring yourself into this condition for the lusts, pleasures and profits of this world in the enjoyment of which I did then promise myself much delight. But now every one of those things also bite me and gnaw me like a burning worm. But canst thou now not repent and turn? God hath denied me repentance. His word gives me no encouragement to believe. Yea, himself hath shut me up in this iron cage. Nor can all the men in the world let me out. Oh, eternity, eternity. How shall I grapple with the misery that I must meet with in eternity? Again, you see there, as here, it is the impossibility of finding repentance that marks out the sin of apostasy. It is the distinctive feature which we find. The man who is trapped metaphorically in the iron cage of despair. And he knows as well as any that he cannot escape. But obviously if a man falls off but comes back again. As the believer is apt to do from time to time. He has merely backslidden. That's a different category. And let us be clear about that. He has not committed the sin of apostasy. By his return he has proved otherwise. We think for instance of David and Peter. Who both fell for a time, 
but who rose again in faith and repentance. So it is not every fall into sin that we must regard as apostasy. It is only he who falls away, who in fact departs from the living God as his Savior, to use the language of chapter 3, who sets out on a new path with set purpose, regarding what he once saw as his salvation, even the blood of the Lamb, with contempt. Here is one who is truly apostate, for whom there is no hope, one for whom the blood of Christ avails not. And so for whom, for whom to use the language here, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, there is no sacrifice for sin. One who now must deal with God with none to help him. Again, his case is truly desperate. It is lost. It is beyond hope. For him, there is only the awful and dreadful expectation of judgment. Now he must deal with God without a mediator, without mercy and grace, solely on the basis of his own unrighteousness before the righteousness of God. For him, there is only wrath without mercy, a graceless reckoning for his sin before the bar of God's justice. Beloved, let this woeful state and sad possibility be to us a warning not to go down this road. A warning post on the way to heaven as it was for Christian on his journey to the celestial city which reads, Beware, go not this way. Many have gone down and have never found their way back. I am aware how easily we are tempted to believe that we may. That we are the exception. That perhaps we can take a short detour on our journey. Only to return again. And indeed, perhaps we may. And many have. But at the same time, perhaps we may not. Who can say for sure? It is better just to stay away. To keep a healthy distance from sin and unbelief. To draw near to Christ daily and hold fast to Him. And make Christian fellowship a top priority. The prospect is indeed dreadful. How can I make you feel it? How can I warn you off it? Would any of us venture out on his own, departing from what he once held dear, and think he would fare well? Oh, that we might see the folly in this. Children, be warned. It is no small thing to profess Christ, to enjoy these outward blessings of Christian fellowship, the preaching and so forth as your parents bring you to church, and then to grow up as an adult and spurn these things and go another way, to go out from here and regard them no more. You may suppose that you can return any time you like, but you may very well find that you cannot. That the way of repentance is closed off to you. That you are trapped in the iron cage of despair. Heed the warning. Beware. Likewise, parents, be warned. Where is there refuge for your soul if not here among the company of the saints? Where else will you find the blessings of the promises? found in the preaching, in the Lord's Supper, in Christian fellowship. Do not think that a, a mere formal profession will ever do. Let your religion always be lively and warm and heartfelt. Let Christian worship be to you a wellspring of constant devotion and growth and grace. Constantly seek to press onward and upward until you have laid hold of the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Never rest content with present portions until you have come to possess the fullness at last. It is lazy Christians who are in the greatest danger. And let me just say, the church is full of them. 
Above all, let us be diligent, as the Apostle says in chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. We desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Be diligent so as to attain this assurance. That is his hope for them, and so it is my hope for all of you. There is the danger. It is a woeful state. It is a sad state. It is a needful warning. But let me say a few words on the remedy. What is it that keeps us safe from falling away finally from Christ? If we see that others uh, fall, we might wonder about ourselves. Why not me? We'll find in this three reasons or three remedies. First of all, We must agree with the apostle here. Do not so quickly shrug off the possibility and the danger of apostasy. Do not treat it as some do as a kind of theory or hypothesis rather than as a dreadful reality that we ought to be warned against. Whatever was true under the old covenant is doubly true under the new covenant. And so he says here in chapter 10 verses 28 and 29, Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace. That is, how much worse will we fare and will our fate be than those who reject what was offered there under the lesser of the covenant, supposing we reject what is offered to us now in the new covenant. We will not fare better, but worse. Surely the honest believer can agree. The fate of of such a one must be terrible. That nothing could be more dreadful than to spurn and trample upon the very blood which he once thought saved him. The very blood of Jesus, the Son of God, who poured out his blood that guilty sinners might be saved. A blood, therefore, as spoken in this epistle, and surely we can agree with both him and Peter and others, a blood which is more precious than anything else or anything that man might offer to God. Jesus, indeed, to use the language of one of the parables, is the pearl of great price. For which a man sells all that he has in order that he might possess this one thing. To believe in Christ, beloved, is to value him. It is to value him as more precious than all. It is to find in his blood our very salvation. Let us agree about that. But also let us agree agree about this. What is left for the man who says, I thought I came to value it, but I was wrong. What I once regarded as precious, even the blood of Jesus, I regard no more. I have no more use for the blood. Let me alone that I may now have my fill of sin. What else could possibly await him but a certain fearful expectation of judgment without mercy, falling into the hands of the living God to whom vengeance belongs and whose judgments are fearful and mighty? Surely we who are truly Christ's disciples... And those who truly value Christ's blood as our salvation and as the pearl of great price beyond value must see and agree that it must be so. That the fate of such a one is dreadful and that there can be for him no mercy, only a fearful expectation of judgment. 
And that as God's holiness and vengeance for sin is seen at the cross, so it will also be seen in those who spurn the mercy offered there. There is no mercy. There is no grace. Only judgment and wrath forevermore. But what we see is not that we are lost. We are not to despair of ourselves, but only how dreadful it is for those who are. And feeling this in ourselves, it causes us to value the blood all the more. That single sacrifice for sin, leading to a second remedy, by which we are kept safe and warned off the dangers of apostasy, and that is to see once more the exhortation which begins in chapter 10, verse 19, not as two, but as one. Uh, and, and you'll even find that uh, in the, the title of the sermon, Doctrine Applied Part 2. In reality, verses 19 through 31 are not two sections, but one. It is one sustained exhortation, and we must see it as one. And so let us return to the exhortations we find there. Verses 19 through 25. And let us feel afresh, having seen and felt what he says about the dangers of apostasy in verses 26 and following. The urgency of what comes before. They are not mere suggestions. They are urgent exhortations in light of the dangers of apostasy. And so I say again, in light of the danger, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And thirdly, Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. See the value of these things against the backdrop and the dangers of apostasy. For, he says, if we sin willfully after having or after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there, is no, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment. See the exhortation standing as one. And seeing this con- connection clearly between these two portions adds great weight to what was said there in verses 19 through 25. And so to the extent that we are falling off our profession because we did not draw near with any consistency and we did not hold fast without wavering and we did not make Christian fellowship a real priority in our heavenly pilgrimage. Let us remedy our failings by heeding the exhortations found there. Again, verses 22 through 25. But lastly... Let us see what keeps us safe more than anything is Christ himself in his priesthood. Something which we should know from uh, the epistle and its repeated emphasis concerning his, his priesthood and what that means to the believer. That a major part of his priesthood is exercised in keeping the saints for himself. In exercising grace for their benefit so that they are kept from falling into this sin. I mean that just as the believer is prepared to commit some great sin and perhaps to fall away altogether, he may be on the very brink of ruin. It is just then that he exerts his own heavenly influence, grace to help in time of need, as he says in chapter 4, verse 16 
uh, and and something very similar at the end of chapter 2. The heavenly assistance which he offers to the believer in his priesthood. And many have found him to be so, a gracious savior to those who are ready to fall. Certainly Peter did, as Christ assured him when he said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith fail not. And when you are converted, strengthen your brethren. Christ here is seen as his priest and his intercessor, who keeps him safe and strengthens his hands just as he falls. And how many of us can add our testimony to Peter's? How many of us have found in Christ the same grace to help in time of need? That just as we were about to fall, or perhaps just as we did, Christ exerted his heavenly influence to save, to help, to to protect. And so we found with Peter, we rose up again with renewed faith and repentance. I wonder if that's your testimony. I can tell you it's mine. The priesthood of Christ, like apostasy, is no mere theory. But the the believer, as he proceeds along his path unto heaven, finds again and again that Christ is there to help him just as he needs, just as he needs him. Just at the moment that he is about to fall, where do we as believers suppose such gracious influences come if not from Christ himself? What is it that causes us with Peter to rise up again in faith and repentance? Do we suppose, just as as we are at the height of sin and unbelief, that it arises from ourselves at our worst moment? Obviously not. It is the gracious influence and ministry of Jesus Christ, pitying and sparing the believer and preserving him from the brink of ruin, reclaiming and regaining him for himself. And here as I close, I would share a quote from John Owen in his book, Indwelling Sin, which I have found as helpful and as true as anything I have ever read in describing the Christian experience, something which I'm saying is a description of my own experience of grace. And I hope you can add your testimony to mine. He says this, so it is with many a believer. He is oftentimes at the very brink, at the very door of some folly or iniquity when God puts in by the efficacy of actually assisting grace. And recovers them to an obediential frame of heart again. And this is a peculiar work of Christ. Wherein he manifests and exerts his faithfulness toward his own. He's able to succor them that are tempted. Hebrews 2.18 It is such a power as is put forth from a sense of the suffering of poor believers under their temptations. And how does he help in time of need? Uh, Excuse me. How does he exercise this merciful ability towards us? He gives forth and we find in him grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 4.16 Seasonable help and assistance for our deliverance when we are ready to be overpowered by sin and temptation. When lust has conceived and is ready to bring forth. When the soul lies at the brink of some iniquity. And I would add, when we are at the very brink of apostasy, he gives seasonable help, relief, deliverance and safety. Here lies a great part of the care and faithfulness of Christ toward his poor saints. He will not suffer them to be worried with the power of sin, nor to be carried out unto way uh, that uh, that shall dishonor the gospel or fill them with shame or reproach. But he steps in with the saving relief and assistance of his grace, stops the course of sin and makes them in himself more than conquerors. Amen. And let us now come to the table.
Well, the amazing thing about the table, I alluded to this briefly in the sermon, is that uh, it reveals our allegiance. Uh, there is something about this whole experience that is searching. It was so when it was first instituted at the Last Supper. We found uh, disciples who were about to fall away, but not finally. Christ would strengthen them again. And yet there was one, Christ says, who was apostate in their midst, Judas. And it was at that moment that his apostasy became evident, even to himself. Uh, and so there is a, a real searching element and dynamic present in the supper. Uh, it, it, it is offered to believers like those 11 disciples who are conscious the dangers of apostasy. As Jesus says, the hand who betrays me is at the table. We recognize that there are apostates that we will witness and they will stand to us as a warning sign. And we might wonder about ourselves, what will keep us from falling with them? Uh, and the answer is the grace which is offered here, the forgiveness and the salvation that's offered in his blood. Let's see here. Luke chapter 22, verse 14. When the hour had come, he sat down with the 12 uh, disciples uh, and the 12 disciples with him. Then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of this until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he took also the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me at uh, on the table. And truly, the son of man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Then they began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. But as I say, it soon appears that it was Judas. Uh, and so we should see, as Paul later says in First Corinthians chapter 10 and 11, uh, a searching test found at the table. What is it that we are seeking and what is it that we are made aware of about ourselves? In other words, uh, do we value the blood? Do we value the body and the blood? And, and, uh, and do we find in this sacred meal a token of our salvation, the forgiveness of sins found in the blood and the body of Jesus Christ? Or perhaps we're seeking another way, as with Judas, and our place in the church is that of an imposter. As I say, I, I think uh, this table has a way of searching and finding out the true and the false. Although we might be like the disciples, wondering about ourselves. Well, if we're wondering about ourselves, I think we might be all right. I think, I think that's all I'm going to say. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Lord's Supper. We thank you that uh, though we are prone to doubt and to wonder about ourselves like the disciples, you are the one who strengthens us. But the apostate is someone on an altogether different course. He sets his heart with set purpose to betray the Savior. Father, if, if, if we should fall in other categories of sin, let us come. But to the one who is apostate, what is there to say? There isn't anything left to say. Only to believers do we warn and do we urge and do we uh, seek to comfort at the same time. And so, Jesus Christ, we ask you to comfort and to strengthen and to console your church and, and to give us renewed faith and repentance, even through this means. And let us discover about ourselves more fully, not that we disbelieve, but that we believe. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Beginning with the bread, our Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples as I'm ministering in his name. Give this bread to you. Our Lord Jesus said, take, eat, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, our Savior also took the cup and having given thanks as has been done in his name, he gave it to his disciples as I ministering in his name, give this cup to you. And as a reminder, the outer ring is wine.
Our Lord Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Drink of it, all of you. Now, as we close out our worship, let us stand together and sing hymn number 233. Now the Lord's blessing, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.